0: glad to be here with you this evening. Uh, as, as Daniel said, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor at City on a Hill, Forest Hills. And it is my honor and joy to be with you uh, tonight as we talk about the, uh, the book of James, and so just want to encourage each of you, I'm so thankful for what you're doing here. Uh, in, uh, in this Exodus in Newton, it's kind of like, it's a little bit like uh, the Exodus. You're kind of wandering, waiting for the promised land. You will get back, I promise. And, uh, but you guys have been so faithful. I'm excited to serve alongside you guys this summer um, as uh, Forest Hills and Brighton work with Jensen. And so I'm sure there'll be some crossovers, some opportunities to hang out with you guys. I, I don't want to say it's too loud, because I know, I mean, maybe someone from Brookline or Somerville is watching. You guys are my favorite. And so I'm just glad to be here. I, 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 look, when my kids, I always tell my kids, whichever one I'm closest to at the moment is my favorite. And so they all just want to hang around me. So you, but right now you guys are my favorite. So, uh, so, so good to be, uh, with you tonight. Uh, and tonight we're going to be continuing our series in the letter of James. And as, uh, Pastor Aaron started last week, we looked at, uh, James. James is a letter, as, as he said, um, this is a letter that was written to a dispersed group of Christians around the world. And so they had been dispersed after, uh, the persecution that happened in Acts, uh, James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, writes this letter to them, probably to originally to an initial church, and then was spread to multiple churches around the region to encourage them and encourage people who were in the midst of trial and struggle and suffering. And so this letter really is a letter intended to give them all the tools that they needed to face persecution, all the, the wisdom that they needed to face a life of suffering. And we see from this last week that God in His goodness and in His grace to us, Uses our trials and our sufferings to increase our joy in Him, uh, to build us up and strengthen us as followers of Jesus, so that everything we face in this world is meant and intended to draw us closer to God. No matter what it is, God's good gifts are intended to draw us closer to Him through trial. And the key to this is to understand James as a book of wisdom. It's very similar to the Proverbs. If you read through James, it almost looks like bullet points. Seems like he jumps topic over and over again because he's really giving these bullet points of wisdom for life. And so wisdom is the idea of taking God's truth and then applying it to life, taking ideas about who God is and then applying them to everyday life. And so you can take ideas about God's goodness or God's love or God's grace or God's mercy or his steadfastness, any possible truth we can think of that we've received in the gospel of Jesus Christ and then take that and by faith apply it to our, our jobs or our relationships or our, uh, anything in everyday life. But there's this struggle and this disconnect between what we believe and what we do. There's a disconnect between believing that God is good and trusting that God is good. There's a disconnect between believing God is merciful and actually living out that mercy. or are believing in God's forgiveness and extending forgiveness to other people. And I believe that the reason for this is deep down, we have a trust issue. We have an issue trusting that God is really who He says He is and God does what He promised He would do. Uh, I, I tend to be very skeptical of new things, which is really strange for a guy who planted two churches. Um, I tend to be really skeptical of new things because I'm just not an early adopter. Like when the iPhone came out, I was like, it'll never stick. I just did not believe that it would last. And somebody's like, man, this thing will change your life. I'm like, I don't believe you. I just, I'm just not an early adopter because when I see something new, something that's new to me, I tend to think it's just too good to be true. And so I'm one of these people who, I'm a late adopter. I I read every review I can possibly find. I I tend to be a wait-and-see type of person, and I read the bad reviews. I want to know what that, I don't don't care about the person who just marked five stars and moved on with their life. I want to know why that person marked one star. And I think that's how many of us approach God. We approach God with a wait-and-see mentality. We're not early adopters on his commands and on his promises. And so when we hear his commands and we hear his promises and we see the characteristics of who God is in the scriptures, we just think, you know, I just don't trust it. I'm I'm just not sure. And I believe that's actually why one of the reasons that the Bible was written is written in such a way that we would see the faithfulness of God over and over and over again to tell us that we can really trust God. And it's almost like saying, hey, go read the reviews. Read the reviews of God's faithfulness, that he's been faithful before and he will be faithful again. He's been trustworthy before and he'll be trustworthy again. And that when we understand God's word rightly, it leads to life. When we apply that wisdom to our lives, it leads to a flourishing life. And so that's why we see the command in the scriptures to give ourselves to God's word. If you look at Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, it is just a love letter to God's word. And we see the psalmist writing and talking about the Torah and saying, this is what we should want more than anything else. This is where we should put our joy and our hope and our longing into God's Word and to begin to apply it with faith. And when we do that, we begin to see the benefit in our lives. And this is why verse 12, kind of this hinge verse in chapter 1, really is is really within that context. It says the word blessed. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who... Love him. The word blessed is the Greek word makarios, which means happy or flourishing. And I always remember this word because when I lived in Birmingham, Alabama, in downtown Birmingham, there was a Lebanese restaurant named Makarios, and they had the best shawarma that I've ever had in my life. And so when I think of the good life, I think of shawarma, I think of Makarios, which means blessed, okay? So this shawarma is the good life. There will be shawarma in the new heaven and the new earth. I believe it. Amen? Amen. Uh, And so we've we've seen this word blessed before in the Bible. We've seen this word blessed when we went through the Sermon on the Mount about a year and a half ago. And we see there this way of living before God and others that seems so counterintuitive, so counterproductive to how we think we should live that actually leads to life. And what's being said here in James is that when we face our trials and we face our sufferings by trusting the God who loves us, it actually leads to our flourishing. And we will trust the one that we love. And this is a matter of love because at the end of that verse, it says that this is promised to those who love him. You will follow after what you love. You will trust what you love because we are designed to hitch our hearts to someone or something. And I don't know if you've ever tried to pull a trailer behind a vehicle. Wherever the vehicle goes, the trailer will eventually go. Your trust will always follow what you hitch your love to. And as we hitch our love to to Jesus, we see that we can trust him even through hard circumstances. And so James puts this theory to the test. And he wants us to see what happens when we give God our whole heart. So we're going to kind of invert this passage a little bit because I do think we need to look at this with eyes of love. And so I want us to start out tonight by looking at what this tells us about God, because if we don't see God rightly, if we don't understand who God is and why he's lovely, we'll never trust him. I mean, why would you trust someone that you don't know? It's a big difference if a stranger walks up to you and offers you a piece of candy versus your grandmother, right? I mean, ever since you were a little kid, it's like, don't take the candied apple from the stranger on Halloween. It has razor blades in it, right? Anybody ever hear that as a kid? But your grandmother's not going to give you a candied apple with a razor blade in it because she loves you and you love her and you can trust her. The Bible is unique because it shows us a God that we can know. It shows us a God who wants to be known, that he's not just transcendent. He's not just all powerful. He's not just above it all, but he's actually intimate and imminent among us. And this is why the call in Psalm 46 tells us to what? Be still and know that I am God. That's difficult for us, right? In a busy city where we just need to stop and slow down and take a deep breath and think about the God who wants us to know him. Or Psalm 27a, which tells us to seek his face, to know him personally and intimately or the new covenant promise of of Jeremiah 31 verse 34, which says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God wants to be known, and that should give us hope in the moments when he feels distant. In the moments where God feels far off, and we don't feel like we can hear his voice, and we're in a dry place spiritually, we have a God who tells us to call upon him, and he will be found. And so with this idea in mind, we have a God who wants to be known, and we see a few things about God that he reveals to us through this passage, and the first is that God is good. Our God is a good God, and so what does it mean that God is good? Well, I think it means two things. One is that he's the standard of goodness, and then secondly, he is what satisfies us as good. He's the standard of goodness. The Bible tells us he is perfect in all of his ways, which means he is perfectly loving and perfectly holy and just, perfectly mighty and gracious, and all that is good and right is summed up in the nature and the character of God, meaning that if he is the standard, he is the measuring stick by which we declare what is good. And I believe the problem we often have when we come to the Bible and we struggle with things we see about God and we wonder if God is good is that we are measuring God against our standard of goodness. We're measuring God against our standard of mercy or our standard of what we would call loving or right. But if I were wanting to measure from here to the back of the sanctuary, I could attempt to walk it off. I've got big feet and long stride. I go, okay, that's that's about a yard. I could walk it off. But if you were to take a measuring tape and measure from here to the front of the stage, that's going to give you an accurate measure of the distance. No matter how many steps I take, off, no matter how right I think I am, I have to adjust my measurement by the standard of what's right and wrong. But it's not just about what's right or wrong. It's also about what we consider to be beautiful. So I want you to take a moment. I want you to just a little little exercise here, a little group participation. Uh, I want you to get in your mind the the visual of the most beautiful mountain you've ever seen. In fact, if you need to close your eyes, go ahead. Just don't fall asleep. Um, Take a moment and just get it in your mind. Imagine the most beautiful mountain you've ever seen. Everybody got it? Lock it in, Okay. For me, it was seeing Denali. I got to serve two summers in Alaska, and I remember getting to see Denali for the first time. We're going to visit, and we pull off in this little place on the side of the road, and I'm eating sourdough pancakes, getting to look at Denali. It was the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. And so when you think about the, the, the standard of beauty, you compare every other mountain you've ever seen to that standard, right? He said, well, you know, it's not Denali. It's not Kilimanjaro or wherever, wherever you've gone. But what starts to happen is when you look at every other mountain, it makes your mind eventually go to the standard of beauty. In the same way, our hearts are designed that any goodness or beauty or truth, any little bit of that that we get to see or experience here is meant to point us towards God who's the standard of goodness. And when you understand God as the standard of goodness, it changes the way that you see the gifts that He gives us. Verse 17 says, Every good Gift and every perfect gift is from above. This means that when we face temptation, we can understand that God is not the one tempting us, but that He wants good for us, that He has no evil intention for us. And so the trials and the suffering that we experience are ultimately good gifts, not to lead us to temptation, but to shape us and change us. And we even begin to see how He can use evil for good. If you remember the story of Joseph in Genesis, which in the fall, we're going to begin going through Genesis. It's going to be a lot of fun about a really broken family. And, uh, and we, we see the story of Joseph, whose brothers, worst brothers ever, you know spoiler alert, sell him into slavery. They sell him into slavery and Joseph could have been bitter. He could have been angry, but eventually rises up to second in command over all Egypt. And when he had the opportunity to take out revenge upon his brothers, he shows them grace. And he says these words that what you meant for evil, God turned out for good. But not only is God the standard of goodness, he's also satisfying us that he is good. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't know about you, but I love food. And there's several food examples in this. I I was hungry, I think, when I wrote this. Um, But I love food and I love having other people enjoy food. And I love giving recommendations about food. And so when we have friends in town, one of the first things I do is I say, hey, we got to go to the North End because I want to get you a cannoli. I want you to eat a cannoli. And I love watching the look on people's face when they eat a cannoli, because I think that's about as close as we can possibly get to heaven, right? Of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. God wants you to see and savor his goodness because he's the only one who truly satisfies. In John chapter four, we see a visual of this where the woman at the well draws to the well at noon, believing that no one else would be there because of her shame. And she draws there and she's gonna draw water and Jesus providentially meets her at the well. And he says, I wanna give you living water that, will never, that you'll never thirst again. And as she begins to inquire about this and all this, Jesus eventually says, well, you know, why don't you go get your husband? To which she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus exposes her in that moment and says, no, you don't have a husband because you've had five husbands. You've given yourself to cheap alternatives looking for comfort or security or safety that were never going to be enough for you. But you need to look to the one who can satisfy your soul forever. Tim Chester says, if you look for satisfaction or fulfillment anywhere other than in Jesus, then you will be left empty. If you look for meaning or identity anywhere else, then you will be left disappointed. There may be a a moment of refreshment or pleasure, but you will soon be thirsty again. You will soon be dissatisfied, unhappy, unfulfilled, lost, and empty. But Jesus offers a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says you need never, ever be thirsty again. So God is is good, but he's also unchanging. Why, Why can you trust God when your life falls apart? Because his goodness never fails. His goodness never changes, even when your perception or your ability to see his goodness does. And I believe this may be the most important characteristic of God that you and I can cling to and hold on to in the midst of trials. Verse 17 continues in the second half, it says that all these gifts are coming down from the Father of lights, that's creation terminology, these powerful overall creation, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so this is talking about the, the solar, uh, the, the, the kind of a solar lunar pattern. So that at some point there'd be a sun in the sky and then the moon would come out. He's saying that there is no variation with God, that he's not changing. That, that, that he's not, he doesn't weeble or wobble. He's not wavering in his goodness to us. And we see this in the covenant promises of God that much like to Israel, he does the same to us that when we mess up again and again and again, God never throws his hands up and says, That's the last time. I'm done. He doesn't do that. He doesn't change based on a whim. He doesn't change based on what's popular. He doesn't change based on, upon our culture. And we live in a culture where we can't decide whether butter is good for us or not. You know, we live in a culture where in the 70s, you know, you're, you're going to die if you eat too much butter. It's high cholesterol. And then it's like, no, you need, need to eat margarine. And then it's like, well, no, margarine will give you cancer. So let's just eat butter and I'll go to Jesus faster. Like, we, we can't decide what's, what's good and right. We're constantly changing. But God's mercy towards us never does. And we see this, this unchanging nature of God in this way that his standard doesn't change. That the God doesn't grade us on a curve. That we, you and I can't be pretty good because if it was up to us in our best efforts, it would be God lowering his standard in order to allow us in his presence. And God is not going to relax his holy standard. But also we see the commitment of God to redeem us through the work of his son on the cross. We see the the holiness and the love of God was satisfied in the unchanging purposes of God to redeem us from the very beginning of time. The third thing we see is that God is gracious and this shows us his grace because why did God come to rescue us? Why did God call us into his family? It says at the beginning of verse 18, of his own will. Not because you're good enough, not because you have it all together, but because of his gracious and good, unchanging will. That God would give his very own son, as Isaiah says, that it was his will to crush him on our behalf. And when you think about this, when you think about the the goodness of God, the unchanging nature of God, the graciousness of God, what, what should happen is it should make you think, how could I not love him? How could I not love the one who died for me? How could I not love the one who loves me so much? And it changes the entire equation. We begin to look at, as it says, that we've been saved by the word of truth, the unchanging promise of God. And we realize that all the promises of sin that are constantly changing, where they're constantly moving the goalposts on us can never satisfy. And we're saved by the steady, faithful promises of God to us in Jesus. And we see the purpose of this at the end of verse 18, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What's it mean to be the first fruits? It means a couple of things. One is, is that it means it's an idea of importance, that God created us as the pinnacle of creation, people who've been given the image of God to reflect him in the world, but also because of our sinfulness, we see this is redemptive that God redeems us. And then just like in the Old Testament where they would take the very best of the crop, the very best of the animal and set it aside as a sacrifice for God, you and I have been set aside for God. Why? To display his glory. So that all creation would see a redeemed people praising God and they would look at God and say, look at what God has done. Do you see how good God is? Do you you see how unchanging and gracious he is? And when we think about this nature of God, do we have any doubt that he's a good gift giver? Do do you have any doubt that he wants good for you, that that he he gives out of his good and holy character? And so now that we've kind of got our mind right around this, what are these gifts that God gives us? So let's look at what God gives. We're able to see these first few verses with fresh eyes. The first thing we see is that we've been given a new status. We've been given a new status in Christ. And when we look at verses 9 and 10, we see that James is speaking into their everyday life and he's speaking into a world that was all about status and image. Not a whole lot different than our world, right? In fact, there was a study a few years ago that showed, it showed two groups of people, two groups of pictures. And so with the first test group, they had a group of people who were in clothing that would have been associated with like white collar work. And then they took another group of people and had them dress in clothing that was associated with blue-collar work. Well, they had group one look at that. Well, then group two, they flipped it. They took the people who were originally blue-collar, made them white-collar, and so on and so forth. And it was amazing that almost across the board, those who were considered to be more attractive and intelligent were those who seemed to have jobs that paid better and were considered having a higher status. We live in a world that is, is, is it's about status-seeking, And we live in a world where we tend to categorize people by what they do and how much money they make. But James says that we have an identity, a status that transcends all of that. And so in verses 9 and 10, he talks about the poor and the rich. And he parallels them in such a way that's a little bit different than typically the way that the Bible talks about the rich and poor. The Bible often talks about the rich as a symbol of wickedness and the poor as a symbol of righteousness but what's, and there's actually, he's actually going to say a lot here in a couple of chapters about the rich, and, and he's, he's going to say a lot, get, get ready, buckle up. But here, he compares these two groups who've been given a new status and been given a new command, but how they relate to that command differs. He tells both of them, he says, for both, he says, boast, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. We see very different reactions to being in Christ. For the poor, the word lowly is the poor. We see God's special heart for the poor. And we see this throughout the scriptures. We see these near to the brokenhearted. We see that he cares for the oppressed. And I do believe that this should inform how we care for the the poor and the oppressed in our neighborhoods, even even government policy. That's another sermon for another day. Um, But we even see that in Jesus's first words in uh, the gospel of Luke, his first words in his teaching ministry were to, to bring liberty to the captive and bring freedom to the poor. And what he says here is he says, let the one who has a lowly status in this world boast in his exaltation. In other words, that you've been given a status that transcends your earthly status. And it actually gives hope to your earthly one. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, we see blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. That is status language. Boast in the fact that you've been given a new identity as a child of God. But then he also calls for the rich to boast in their humiliation. If you are rich, and I would say most of us in this room, when we talk about the globally are rich, the world is ours. We have options. And typically, if you are rich or you're doing well, you get a lot of praise for what you do. You, you get praise at work. You're seen as successful. You have degrees. You have, you know, degrees on the wall. You, you have, you know, you know, letters behind your name. And it's really easy to start thinking about those things as reasons to boast. Reasons to say, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at where I've come from and look at where I am now. And those are not bad things, but the call for us is to boast our humiliation. Not our shame, because Christ has taken our shame, but that in following Jesus, we look like the Apostle Paul who said that everything he had ever accomplished, everything he'd ever been born into, he said, I can count it all rubbish compared to knowing Christ. But also, we live in a world where following Jesus is hard, and you may look foolish in the eyes of others who would say, why would you believe that? Why would you? I thought you were smarter than that. Following Jesus might cost you professionally. It might cost you influence. It might cost you relationships, but there's a call for us to count the cost and consider that humiliation worthy of following Jesus. Because what's being said at the end of verse 10 and the end of verse 11 is that if you put your hope in positions or possessions, Those are frail things that will eventually burn up. Verses 10 and 11, it says that uh, the rich and their humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its power uh, falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. These are things that look good from the outside and that seem to have a lot of value now, but eventually will burn away. It's kind of like having, being rich with a, with a type of money that doesn't really have any value anymore. If you, if you look back at the Civil War, the Confederacy uh, printed their own money at the beginning of the Civil War, and it was worth a lot of money at the beginning, but as they began to lose, that money began to lose value. And by the end of the war, if you, if you were caught with all that money, it was absolutely worthless. So what good was it to be rich with Confederate money? In the same way, we can be rich in the world's eyes, yet poor in God's eyes. And that earthly beauty will fade. But whatever humiliation that we face here is worth what we have in Jesus. So we receive a new status, but secondly, we receive new affections. God begins to change what and how we love. And if you trust God that he's good, that he's unchanging, that he's gracious, what you begin to see, you begin to see what's really going on in the midst of temptation. As James says in verses 13 and 14, it's not that God is using these trials to tempt you towards evil or tempt you towards sin, but he's actually using trials in your life to expose what's already in your heart. He's using these trials to expose what's already there. And the temptation latches onto that desire and longs after something that God doesn't want for us. Tim Keller says that the test is the occasion for the failure, but not the cause of the failure. So in eighth grade, I cheated on the only test that I've ever cheated on. I cheated on an algebra test. I told the, the, the congregation this morning because my mom often uh, watches it in our live stream. I'm like, I'm sorry, mom. You probably found out this way that I cheated on a test. Um, but I cheated on this test. And the reason I got caught was that the teacher had, had multiple tests in the room. And so I filled out the answer for the wrong test. Uh, And so she calls me in. She says, did you cheat on this test? And I said, I did. And she very graciously let me take the test again. Uh, The thing is, is that algebra test didn't cause me to cheat. It exposed something in my heart. It exposed that I wanted to do well more than I wanted to be honest. It exposed that I wanted a good grade more than I wanted to be a person of integrity. And so the trials and the tests that God brings into our life are not meant to tempt us towards evil because He wants our good. It exposes what's already there. It exposes our desires. And the, verse, the word for desire in verse 14, where it says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. That word desire is literally over-desire, something you want more than you should, something you want even more than God. And so when when it comes to facing temptation, what happens with our desires is we will always do what we want to do. We'll always give ourselves to what we love most and to what we believe will satisfy us and make us flourish in that moment. So when we sin, what we're saying is, I love this more than I love the Lord. And the way the desire works in this, verses 14 and 15, give three metaphors for how this works. We see uh, a metaphor of fishing, the lure, like literally a fishing line. Enticing would be like trapping an animal. And what's being said with these is that that these are things that lure us into trouble. And verse 16 tells us, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. These are things that lie to you. Your, Your desires unchecked will lie to you it's a lie saying that this is what you want most, this is what will satisfy, this is what is good. And to use that, that, that fishing terminology a little more, I love the fish, I don't know if you do, but but there's two ways you can bait a fish. You, you, can, you can use live bait, which looks real, it is real, but it's got a hook inside of it. And there are some ways that our desires are enticed or lured away with something good, something real, something actual that just has a hook hidden inside of it to draw us away from God. And there are other times that it's artificial. You use artificial bait that's plastic and inauthentic. But the other metaphor that, that James uses is the idea of pregnancy. He says that when our desire implants, when it, uh, when it conceives, it gives birth to sin. And so it gives an occasion to sin. And if it's lived out to its fullest extent, it grows towards Death. What desires are we giving ourselves to? Where are we being lured away by and enticed by that is ultimately attempting to lead us to death? But one of the gifts that God gives us as we trust Him and we give our whole heart to Him is He begins to change what we desire. And in fact, if we look at verse 18, this, this is creation language. To be the first fruits of His creatures. And we begin to see how he does this if we think about creation itself. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, the language there is very poetic and beautiful. And it talks about how God creates by turning chaos into order. And what God begins to do in us through the Spirit is he makes us a new creation in such a way that he begins to pull all the disordered desires of our life together that would eventually lead us to death and begins to direct them towards God who gives us life. And what happens is it's a reordering and a reorienting of our, the signal towards God. I don't know how many of you ever had to watch TV on an old antenna TV. You may have to do that. I did when I was a kid. Some of you may be too young for that, and that's okay. Uh, they had those back in the day. And the, the thing with, it, with an antenna was, if you try to watch TV with an antenna, Everything had to be right. All the conditions had to be right. And you had to take these two little metal wires or, or sticks and point them in the right direction. And if you were like eating a ham sandwich instead of a turkey sandwich, it wouldn't work. And you had to stand still. I remember one time as I a I literally had to stand like this for like 15 minutes because I, I, did, I couldn't move the signal. What God is doing is he's reorienting and reshifting and reshaping us to point our desires towards God. And the trials that might expose our anger or our lust or our bitterness can become a means that God uses to reorient our hearts and our desire toward Him. And when we see the gap between our response and God's goodness, we see that God wants to replace that old desire with a new desire, with a better desire. Because you don't kill bad desire by just starving it or by ignoring it, but by replacing it. Thomas Chalmers, wrote, who's a Puritan, wrote this beautiful book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he said in that book, the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it an object even more beautiful. And so the call for you and I is to love something more. And we do that by fixing our eyes on Jesus. And when we see what Jesus has done for us, we see thirdly that he gives us a new life that he came to give you life. And so maybe for you this evening right now, you are giving yourself to desires that lead to death that you know will never satisfy you, but there's this ache in your heart because it's just never enough. And it always feels like there's something more, but we see Jesus' words, his promise in John chapter 10, where he says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Lord laid his life down for you and I that we could have new life in him. Let's pray.